Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and you're listening to I Love That Movie. And if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate our show. It helps new listeners find us. And if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at um, ILTM Podcast. Um, I also have an I Love That Movie Podcast Instagram account. And we've got a closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. Just send a request and I'll add you. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite film judgment-free. I do have a quick plug. I am going to have a panel at DragonCon. We're going to be talking about aliens. So in the meantime, please go ahead and rewatch that movie. And then um, if you are going to DragonCon, please join us. And if not, I will put out an episode uh, from what we record there sometime after the event. Uh, And with that, I want to turn over to our returning guest, Tim. Say hi, Tim. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me back on your show. Hey, yeah, I'm so glad to have you back. Um, We've had you on here a few times. Usually we're talking about Steven Spielberg. Um, But today we're talking about a different movie. But before we get to that movie, go ahead and introduce yourself real quick. Yeah, we're we're talking talking about another auteur that changed Hollywood. But before that, um, yeah, my name is Tim Rooney. I'm a filmmaker and podcaster from Long Island, New York. I, I have two podcasts, the Anything Goes podcast and Please Rewind. We talk about movies and pop culture on Anything Goes. And that's kind of like a kind of a free-for-all and kind of deep dives on movies. And Please Rewind, uh, part of the Real Fans 4 Real Movies podcast network. That is when we talk about movies when it comes to anniversaries. And this is share our kind of experiences. And uh, it's kind of a, a laugh ride all the way through. We can never, we can never, we're not too serious when we, we podcast. So that's always a good time like that. And like I said, I'm a filmmaker. My YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where all my short films, a lot of my videos are up. Uh, one of my short films, Jack, uh, made for the My Annabelle Creation uh, contest two years ago, just passed 16,000 views. And we passed 200 subscribers. I know it's a drop in the bucket for certain channels, but for me, who somebody does it, while balancing two different jobs and the podcast I do, uh, it's kind of a, it's like I'm taking a little bit of a victory laugh, but I'm like, okay, while this is still going on, I'm writing my feature film, like I want to make it might be my debut later this year or early next year. And so, yeah, that is me in a nutshell. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, what, what movie are we going to talk about today? We're talking about 1941's Citizen Kane. Yes. So excited to talk about this. Um... Tim, why don't you tell me, uh, oh, before we go there, uh, I think what I want to do and kind of break up how we normally do this, I'm just going to read a quick synopsis. It's literally just a sentence. So in case you haven't seen the movie before, if you haven't, 
you know, we're going to get into spoilers. So you might want to pause on this episode and go ahead and watch it real quick and come back. But if not, just, you know, the gist of it is it's following the death of a publishing tycoon, Charles Foster Kane. Uh, reporters are scrambling to uncover the meaning of his final utterance, Rosebud. And of course, it's a bigger deep dive than that, but that's just kind of the simple gist of what the movie's about. Yeah, it's a simple conceit that that winds up being a mystery wrapped up in an enigma. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And it is very complicated and very simple at the same time. It is a balancing act that is very, it's very hard to um, replicate for sure. Oh, absolutely. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the first time you saw this movie? And what your experience was with it? Sure. Uh, I saw this about 15 years ago after I'd been told by my granddad and my mother, who were very supportive in my endeavors to become a filmmaker and a film, uh, I guess, uh, buff or historian, whichever term you want to use, that they had told me, like, oh, it's considered the greatest movie of all time. And Turner Classic Movies was doing one of their annual showings of it because they do it uh, pretty frequently. And... Robert Osborne was still the host at the time, and he introed the movie. I watched it, digested it. Movie comes to uh, the end, and I'm like, "It's all right. It's pretty. It was entertaining. Uh, that's for sure. I know it's like I, I'm trying not to. I'm just like, oh, it's not that good. I'm, I'm no. It was just that I was going in with the preconceived notion that this is considered the greatest movie of all time, and so that was very. It's a lot of pressure on a viewer. It's just like it's kind of like. You love a movie and you show like a friend of yours who, who and you're like, you keep looking at them and see if, like, do you like it? Is it good? And then they, they just get like, oh, it's fine and everything. And you just feel immediately disappointed. It's kind of one of those situations. Mm-hmm. However, the second time I saw it, I just saw it on its own. I was like, all right, I'm just going to watch this movie and see if like, I get something more out of it. And that's when it clicked for me. And then I realized, oh, I understand why this movie changed Hollywood. It only took 40 years to do. Well, it took like 15 years for it to be rediscovered. And it's gone on to redefine Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. I think I had a very similar experience to you in that I think I saw it either in high school or in college, but whenever I saw it, it felt like required viewing. And I don't think I got a lot out of it like you did. I thought, well, that was fine. Um, I don't think I even... I'm not sure if someone said specifically it was like the best movie ever made. I felt like... Or if they did, that washed over my head and I just kind of watched it back then and just I, I thought oh it was fine um but re-watching it now like a couple years ago either a year or two ago my husband just kept saying he he loved it so much and I was like all right you know let's revisit this and I watched it again and uh, I couldn't believe how much I liked it this time it, you know just walking in with a completely different perspective I think being you know, in my 30s versus being in my early 20s or teenage years. It's just such a different film. I think it really grows with you. And uh, it just takes on new meaning um, with repeat viewings, as you've said. Definitely. And it's it's something that if viewers have not seen it before, I know it's going to be kind of tough to go into that with that high expectations. But just kind of like, you turn your phone off and just put on the movie and then you recontextualize what movies were like that before 1941 and then what movies were like after 1941. And I like completely how, agree, yeah. I mean, because you had other filmmakers doing incredible things at the time. Like, you still had John Ford, you had Howard Hawks, you had Michael Curtiz and Billy Wilder making movies at this time. However, there was a shift 
in Hollywood afterwards, and it just like, it, and I guess it's maybe it's because a lot of it's like the Andre Bazin, uh, Bazan, uh, the French critic who, who kind of gave the revival in 1956, and like that's how it became reappraised and then there's so many people from like the movie brats like people like brian de palma martin scorsese george lucas francis ford coppola spielberg so on and so forth that love this movie and it became i i don't want to say the word institutionalized as the greatest movie of all time because i think it's a really harsh word because i feel like there's there's a lot of negative connotation for it but it's kind of like i know a common acceptance that this is considered the greatest movie of all time and i know people say that like it's kind of hard to quantify that because film is so subjective uh, be, because it, it because you take two people, they watch the same movie and they'll get two different things out of it. Same thing, you give two different filmmakers the same script, you'll get two different movies. That's how subjective the art form is. And, but it's just, it's just a common acknowledgement that this is one of the greatest movies of all time. I'm trying to get to that it's hard for on the first viewing because there's been so much built up to it so i say just like all right just kind of go into it if you haven't seen it yet it's like all right let's just see what it's like and then recontextualize what it was like at the time in 1941 yeah i think context has a lot to do with it um i was watching a a couple things on this movie before we got started and uh yeah i mean i i think uh the the impact that it has on film is almost bigger than the film itself um, it's not just the movie, it's how it changed the art form, like you said, specifically in American cinema. And um, I think that that is part of what is so great a- about it. You can't take that part out of it and just watch it, I think, just alone as itself on a movie and and, and see the same things. You have to have that context. Um, but I also think it's just a great story and it's well told, it's well acted. And I think just the more you learn about it, the more you learn about the behind the scenes, the more you fall in love with it. Um, and to kind of get started, I have a couple quick facts I want to throw out there. Uh, we could spend hours listing facts about this movie. There's so much to say, but I'm going to just say a few quick ones before we kind of dive in. Uh, so the first one I have is that Orson Welles was 25 when he directed, co-wrote, starred, and produced this. And it was his first feature film. So that's pretty impressive, pretty incredible. Yeah, and as a filmmaker who has not made a feature film and he's coming up on his 28th birthday, it's like, all right, that's no pressure or anything like that. There's no feel like you need to be running behind or anything. It's the same thing like <laughs> like Spielberg, I think it was like 27 or 28 when he made Jaws, and you're like, oh, well, yeah. But then you have to say like, oh, there's filmmakers and actors who didn't get into the business until their 50s. And so you're like, okay, fine. He's got a, everybody's story is different and everything like that, but it's kind of hard not to compare yourself even in a little way. Like, ah, I'm I'm like, I'm doing something wrong. I'll never achieve the greatness they had, even at such a young age that Wells had. Oh yeah. But I think like with anything else, it seems almost like he just crashed onto the scene, but you know, there, there was a history to that, right? He started with the Mercury theater company that he helped create. So he had tons of, you know, experience with the theater and then the uh, War of the Worlds radio broadcast had happened by this point. And that's kind of what got him his head start and into film. And then also, I mean, really, this ends up being something that Orson Welles himself has trouble living up to later on. And I'm sure we'll get into that soon. I mean, yeah, even like the other great movies he's made afterwards, like whether it be The Magnificent Ambersons or The Trial or A Touch of Evil, it's... He just loomed in that shadow of this movie, even though it was a flop at the time. 
Right. It's like he peaked at 25 and that's, I think that's hard to live with. I, I would almost prefer it be the reverse of that. Like, you know what I mean? To go out strong because he kind of didn't. And we'll, I think we'll talk more about that later on when we talk about him, but it's just, I don't know. It's kind of a, a catch 22. <laughs> um, so Orson Welles later said that he regretted the way Marion Davies was portrayed as Susan Alexander and that Davies was a really wonderful woman. I just thought that was kind of touching. Yeah, and even Davies didn't have that kind of harsh problems with the movie as much as her boyfriend did because her and Hearst <laughs> did not marry. Yeah. And it was it was kind of a thing like Hearst was a, I think, a devout Catholic. That's why I don't think he ever got a divorce from his first oh, wife. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was listening to the podcast, You Must Remember This, and they did, she led uh, Karina Longworth did like a series on MGM uh, stars and she car- she covered Marion Davis in an episode and it goes very much in the story of her and her relationship and then the controversy about Susan Cain being made. Yeah, yeah. William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Very interesting story with that. Um, I also had that the audience watches Cain make his speech. Um, that audience is actually a still photo and to give the illusion of movement, hundreds of holes were pricked in with a pin and lights were moved around behind it. And I don't think I ever noticed that until after I read that. But it's kind of like things, once you say that, it's like, oh, like you just kind of slap yourself in the head. Like, oh, duh, of course that's how it would be. And it's like, why, why didn't I, why didn't I notice that before? But it's... I know. And, and it's one of those things because this was made for about $800,000 in 1941 it's nothing to uh sneeze mm-hmm. at or anything like let me do a quick inflation counter i should have done this before uh no you're fine um while you're looking that up no that i i had heard that too i mean they gave him you know a good budget it wasn't like nothing but at the same time it wasn't a huge budget maybe his ideas were a little bit bigger than what this was going to cover and so he got really creative and i think a lot of you know, genius moves in movies are created through necessity. Um, and maybe that's part of why this movie is so hard to live up to. He, he's never going to be in that position again of going from not a director, not an act. Well, he was an actor, not a director, not a, you know, big producer into suddenly being one. Um, and, and that's a lot of pressure. And I think that uh, that forced him to get creative and his whole team to get creative. It's it's fun learning about how behind him everyone was and how you know unlike uh charles foster kane he was he was surrounded by people that were supportive of him and wanted to realize his vision and i think that they're all a part of why it was so successful oh definitely and eight hundred thousand dollars in 1941 in 2019 dollars is like you round it up it's 14 million dollars gotcha yeah so yeah enough to make a movie (laughs) That's dang sure, but something of this scale is yeah. impressive nonetheless. Just with all the special effects, especially the ones you don't even notice, and we'll talk about that soon too. I'm excited to talk about that. But um, yeah, it's it's just incredible what he was able to put together uh, with that budget. Um, I think that's pretty much all I had. I think the last one I had, and we'll kind of... I guess we'll go ahead and transition into just talking about Orson Welles a little bit. But, um, you know, this is his only Oscar-nominated acting performance. Which is kind of a shame. But I think it goes back to what you were saying before, that it's unfortunate that he peaked so early that he was never able to attain that kind of um, 
recognition going forward. Like it's like it was like it was like the Big Bang. Like it's like bam, he came on and just slowly kind of drifted away and everything like that, rather than further expanding and ascending to a sense of greatness. Yeah, and I think. I don't know. I wonder if some of that also had to do with his level of comfort, because as I stated earlier, um, a lot of the, you know, he started with the uh, Mercury Theater Company um, and he brought a lot of those people onto this movie. In fact, almost everyone in the movie were not actors on a in a film before this. Like this is like their first acting debut as well on film. So I, I feel like there's something to that. You know, the whole movie is sort of, I think written and shot in a way where it does kind of feel like a play at some points. And I think all the acting in it is a lot like stage acting. And so I think that maybe that's where he feels the most comfortable, where he's at his best. And maybe as he got experience, you know, making more films and being in more films, he might have tried to adapt to the way that you're quote unquote supposed to act. And I don't know, maybe that was restrictive for him. That's why it's... That's why Greg Tolan, the cinematographer, wanted to work with him because mm-hmm. you learn more from people who don't know what they're doing or don't know how right. they're supposed to work. Right. I think there's actually a quote from him. It's like, the only way you can learn anything in this business is from someone that doesn't know what they can't do, which I love that quote. Right. And like, because there's a story of how Wells would kind of direct the lighting and move the lights around and people on the camera department were about to go up to him, but Greg Tolan would walk behind Wells and just kind of like, just like put up his hand like, no, 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 let him, let him do this. And want to help him try and construct it. It wasn't until later on, like in the middle of the production and say like, you know, you're not supposed to do that. That's Greg's job. And Orson goes to Tolan and he's like, um, I am so sorry and everything. And he's like, no, 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 no. Because it, that's how Tolan reacts. He's like, don't worry about it because this is how you learn and you get to experience new things because the th- between 1931 and 1935, Greg Tolan made about 17 movies, and like he continued to make more and more throughout his career. So, and he was there was more of the traditional Hollywood style of like oh high key lighting, shallow depth of fields, and everything. But it was at this point, it like it culminated with like no, we're gonna push boundaries of what we can do and what we can't. And like we're gonna have scenes where. A character's face is mostly obscured in shadow, and he's going to be delivering dialogue, but nobody's going to complain because they're going to be so riveted by the framing and the staging of it that we're just going to nobody. We're going to be everybody's going to be enraptured by it. Right. I think that's where a lot of Orson Welles' background in the theater kind of came in, because you know he was lighting people um, almost like you would in a in a play. You know, especially when there's like a memory or something. There's usually like a shadow and then something else is lit on the stage so that we're looking at that. And I think that speaks a lot to the way this was shot. You talked about, uh, you know, the, the way that it's shot. Usually one thing is in focus, other things are not. Uh, this film, the majority of it, everything's in focus. It's deep, you know, they use deep focus lenses. And so everything in almost every scene we can see at the same time like you would on a stage. Exactly. I mean, one of the moments I, I really enjoy is near the end when the reporter goes to the butler and he asks, like, Rosebud, and, like, he... And the butler's lighting a cigarette, and that's the only thing that illuminates him at that moment was that the lighter being igniting. He lights a cigarette, and then he walks, and then he walks into frame where there's more light. Like, that's a credible moment here. Or when... We have the reporters watching the news on the march afterwards when they're in the uh, uh, screening room. And it's 
just all of them in shadow. Like the only light that's being illuminated is coming from the projector room. And it's since they're all smoking there, there's beams of shafts of light coming out. And it's something that's just so expressionistic and it's captivating to watch because you don't see that today. You don't see like movies being mm-hmm. lit like that today, or not, at least not as often. And this is something in 1941. I know it's something. It's a thing we're gonna come. We're gonna like beat that like a drum, but like that, we just have to recontextualize of what it was like at the time. That's why it's so revered. Right, and like a lot of times, the camera was in a pretty safe place. Right, it was just sort of, you know, on the actor or like I said, focusing on something on the scene. But in this movie, they did a lot of really creative things. In a lot of older movies, uh, there would be a lot of lighting in the ceiling. Everything had to be perfectly well lit. As you mentioned, this movie is, you know, lit with a purpose. But they they used to put a lot of stuff in the ceiling. And in this movie, you can see the ceiling a lot. So they had to put like a muslin cloth that would look like a ceiling on film. And then the lights were like above it on the other side and things like that. Um, you know, putting a camera in the floor to get a better dramatic shot uh i think the coolest thing was you know in the childhood memory scene uh where it moves i think from the outside to like the mom sitting at the table they actually like split the table so that they could pull the camera back you know and then go behind the table i'm you can't see me but i'm trying to like mimic it with my hands and that's not (laughs) the people listening but it's really cool you should look into the behind the scenes of that but just things like that that were very outside of the box like you said even now but even more so in 1941 um just a lot of the visual tricks in this movie they're subtle um when you're watching it but to hear about what went on behind the scenes it, it was complicated and it was very very innovative Right. I mean, I, that like one of the first film classes I ever took was like we had to examine the scene where it's the flashback to childhood uh, Charlie Kane when he's playing outside the house. And we play that scene out and my teacher pauses it and asks like, all right, what was the really special thing about this? And this is before I saw the second viewing. This is only based on the first viewing. And it's raised my hand like despite everything they're saying in the front, we could still see Orson, what well, we see young Charles Kane in the background and he's still screaming. And so we're still drawing attention to him. And he's like, exactly. Because that was the, the decision to have that kind of dual action going on in both the foreground with um, Charles mother and Thatcher signing over to him to the bank. The middle ground is the father pr- uh, protesting until money comes involved. And he's like, all right, I guess it's the, for the best. And then Charles in the background, he's so being ignored and all he wants is love and wants to have, uh, have a good time, which is going to play into it. Every decision that he makes throughout for the rest of his life that happens here. Mm-hmm. It's very subtle. I mean, it, it draws attention to you. It's like, hey, look at this. But it's going to come into play later. And I think you don't get the impact of that scene until the end, you know, and that's just that's such a cool way of doing it. Um, the whole movie is sort of out of order in a way, which was also not typical of the time in which it was made. And it really isn't that typical now, <laughs> but it was really innovative then in, in that the way that it plays with like memory and time. And I don't know, it's just all very, very cool. I'm just gushing now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think that's the, the point of your show here is to discuss movies that we love here. And I think that's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the fact that we have such a subject matter that is so rewarding on for few uh for viewers i think is a a testament to it and uh, i do enjoy the like i I must ask the question after seeing this movie again for the second time did you like go back to see like 
all the references to it, like in The Simpsons and like Family Guy, and realize, oh, that's what they're making <laughs> reference to. No, I feel like I had enough cultural awareness when I saw those things to know what they were referencing, but. No, I didn't go back and like rewatch all that <laughs> or anything, but it would be interesting too. Yeah, because I, I remember seeing obviously the Family Guy clip where it's like it's Peter has, has taped over uh, tapes from the video store and shows the clip like Rose, but and it's custom Peter like hey, it is it is uh um it's just slight. I just shaved from two boobish hours and it's cuts to black and everything. Or <laughs> and I mean, my favorite episode of The Simpsons is called Rosebud, where uh, Montgomery Burns is pretty much Charles Kane. And they, like, they do everything. Instead of a, uh, a sled, it's a stuffed bear and uh, trials and tribulations of getting it back. And there's so many jokes to Citizen Kane that, in that episode that I just, I revel in because I've grown to appreciate this movie that much more. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's had such a huge impact in so many ways including just in pop culture references so yeah i can i can totally see that i was gonna say too one i I don't know so so you know orson welles feels and a lot of people feel like this is his very best work um how much of that do you think has to do with the writing as well because i know he helped write it but herman j mankiewicz um is the you know main writer for this one i think bankowitz is the unsung hero of this movie yeah i agree so in case people haven't heard this story um you can get a really quick version of it i keep man this is gonna make me sound so dumb but i'm just gonna do it anyway there's a really funny drunk history episode on this one uh, <laughs> on um but uh you know that's not where i got all my information i promise but it did pop up when i was reading about it um but anyway yeah i think you know it, it if you don't know the the behind the scenes basically um herman j mankiewicz um was a pretty close friend of william randolph hearst they were uh you know acquainted they knew each other but he saw some kind of i guess ugly stuff behind the scenes i guess you could say and orson wells i think were they like insulted at a party or something and that was the the germ of the idea to like go after this guy or do you know i do not but i wouldn't be surprised because mary davies did hold a lot of social parties at the the compound i forget the uh, simeon i think that was the name of the place where it was it's xanadu in um citizen kane and yeah. so it might have been one of those situations because of wells being the um hot to trot person coming off of being famous for the Mercury Theater and the War of the Worlds uh, radio broadcast. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, that they were just invited out there and came to a party and just Hearst throwing his weight around amongst their other people, like other newspaper magnets like Joseph Pulitzer and other Chicago tycoons like uh, Samuel Insull and Harold McCormick that were kind of the um, accumulations or the conglomerates that becomes Charles Forrester Kane, even though Hearst seems to be the most dominant person in, in his life being depicted in Kane. Yeah, I mean, I think because Her- Herman J. Mankiewicz was the closest to him specifically, like, knew him the best, I think that that's why a lot of the influence from R- William Randolph Hearst comes predominantly from him. But like you said, it's not just picking on him. Um, it's... You know, Charles Foster Kane is his own character, but it, it mirrors so much of William Randolph Hearst's life 
that I, I can see why it offended him. <laughs> and I do feel like Orson Welles was like, hey, let's pull a lot from your experience, what you're seeing and hearing. Let's go with that. And that kind of turned into what the script was. And then, of course, Orson Welles had a lot of input and they rewrote and threw ideas around. But I think it was predominantly Herman Mankiewicz. And I think at first, Orson Welles was really on board with giving him his due. And then as time wore on, they had to argue about that, right? It got to be kind of a tough subject. A little bit. And because Mankiewicz uh, worked, he was a correspondent for several newspapers, including, uh, I believe it was the New York Times. I think that he worked for the New Yorker, as well as the Chicago Tribune. And so he was known for a reporter. And so he knew the kind of industry and the kind of business practices that Hearst and many others would uh used to kind of get their way so i i you're right they probably just tapped into some of the stories and just like when legend becomes fact print the legend kind of thing yeah exactly um but i feel like because this ended up being orson welles best movie arguably i think that's why he was a little territorial over how much of it he created it was like because because when you look at it on the face value you're like isn't that enough that you directed, produced, and started it? But it's like you also kind of want to be the sole writer, too? I just thought that was, you know, interesting. Yeah, and it's depicted in the HBO movie RKO 281, where Leif Schreiber plays Wells and John, John Malkovich plays uh, Mankiewicz. And that's a really great performance, and that it kind of tit-for-tat nature and, like, the sniping they would take each other and like who really was the author of it and because that's just another piece of controversial history that's associated with this movie along with Hearst black Hearst along with Hollywood kind of blacklisting this movie the majority of Hollywood not all of it yeah and you you shared recently on Twitter that uh isn't this going to be Fincher's next film is going to be Mankiewicz yes I think that's what like the it's going to be about the biopic about him let me see I'm just trying to think uh let me well yeah July 2019 David Fincher announced they'd be making a film called Mank a black and white Mankiewicz biopic with a Gary Oldman tentatively cast in the title role Mm, I can't wait to see that already. You know, he did face the Facebook movie, so <laughs> the social network. So it's kind of like along those same veins, two friends kind of duking it out. I, I, I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, and it, it, I literally was just saying to myself the other day, like, where, like, I understand, like, he's been doing a lot of TV and, like, and obviously Mindhunter season two is coming back um, in August of 2019, and... I know the World War Z sequel kind of fell through, but like I was saying to myself, like we haven't gotten another um, David Fincher movie since Gone Girl, and that is far too long in my eyes. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm excited to see this, and I feel like this is my speed. Like this is something that I want to see from him. So happy to get into that. Well, uh, there's so many people to talk about in this movie, including the cast, which is great. But let's go ahead and uh, dive into the movie itself. What do you think? Should we go over some some classic scenes? Yeah, the only problem is is it's almost all of them. True. Let's pick a few. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> Where do you want to start? <laughs> um, I, I say we start from the very beginning because I, 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 the second time I watched it again for this show, I watched it with the Peter Bogdanovich commentary track, which came in the Blu-ray. I did too. I was going to say that too. That's awesome. We watched the same commentary track. <laughs> and I was just like, I was debating like, all right, I got the Roger Ebert one and I got the 
back down if it's one. I'm like, oh, should I we, would. Uh, should we give our, our, our audience a little background into who Peter Bogdanovich is? Yes, I think we should. Okay. Um, Peter Bogdanovich is a filmmaker who like started out like many people in like the kind of movie brat generation where he got his first big break working for Roger Corman of all people because Corman was like the people was a uh, producer who was like okay I'll take these people who want to make movies I'll give them a little amount of money and some and a few days and see if they're able to pull it off and see if they have the chops McDonald's is one of them and he would go on to make the classic film the I believe is the last picture show I think is the name of his most mm-hmm. famous movie yeah he got I think eight Oscars out of that yes That's a lot and for TV viewers, you'll recognize him in The Sopranos. He is yeah. <laughs> he is the shrink to uh, Lorraine Bracco, uh, yeah. uh, Doctor Melfi. Her character, she goes to her uh, shrink, and that's Peter McDonald's, the very dry and very thick glasses, and just very very even keel, which is very much like his personality is in real life and commentary tracks. Nothing is a criticism, but he's like he's got a speed and he, he sticks is. to it. Yeah. Well, and the other interesting thing about him, too, is that, you know, he started out as an actor, then he became like a film critic slash historian. He got pretty close to Orson Welles as a friend, and then he like made the leap into uh, filmmaking. They called him like, you know, Wellesian. I mean, he he was and he very influenced by him as a friend and as a film creator. So, yeah, I think it's just perfect to have him do a commentary track. And that's why his... um, you know, that's why it carries so much weight. And he shares a lot of anecdotal stories about Orson and things he got to ask him and different scenes. So it's almost like he's there. I felt like when I was watching the commentary, so highly recommend, but go ahead. Oh, I I was going to say, because he would like, he would come to a famous moment and then he would just recount a story. He's asking, well, like, all right, so what, what was the thought process here? Like the scene that we spoke about previously where, the camera's so low that they literally dug a hole to look up to both Wells and Joseph Cotton to see after Kane has lost the election. And they asked, like, why'd you do that? And Wells was kind of like shrugged. He's like, well, I thought it looked best from that position. Yeah, it's so funny. It was so natural for him and so instinctual that he didn't really have a good explanation. It's like film critics can look at it and explain why this has so much impact and but you know how do you come up with a new idea like that and it's funny orson welles is just like i don't know i thought it looked better that way <laughs> and i'll admit there were times where like because i enjoy a lot low wide angles there was something i couldn't get low enough and i'm like am i i questioned that i looked to my friend dakota i'm like we may have to dig a hole to get the camera low enough and he's like really he's like, we don't have anything to dig it with like we have hands and we ended up not doing that but it was like it was coming to that point like we may just have to do that we may have to pull a wells here and dig a hole and put the camera in <laughs> get uh, creative exactly and but that i guess goes to what we we're saying like how the critics kind of interpreted that decision it goes back to like some people say they have criticism of certain english classes like why do you think the drapes were blue in this uh, scene here and some people say like oh it it reflects the kind of morose feelings of the characters 
or the snarky answer is like, oh, because they wanted it to be blue. It, it's it's all dependent right. on what you see, what you want to get out of it. If you want to read something mm-hmm. into it, you can. I think it's uh, that's the I think the magic trick of Kubrick movies because they're so wide and so I don't want to say broad or anything, but there's so much you can read into them, or you can take them on face value and just enjoy them as they are. And I think that's the real trick to Stanley Kubrick movies. Yeah, I completely agree. But yeah, so the, the Bogdanovich uh, commentary track, uh, I think we both uh, sign up. We highly recommend if you get the, a DVD or Blu-ray copy of this. Yes. But uh, was he kind of, what what scene were you thinking of that kind of sprung to mind? It, it's the very first shot of the movie. And because it, it opens on a sign of no trespassing. And what do we do as viewers the entire movie? We trespass in this man's life. Yes. I thought that was so interesting. And the movie ends on that shot, too. Right. And, and I felt... It's just like, so cool. And I felt like such a dummy that I never realized that until this viewing. And I'm like, oh... I literally, like, facepalmed. And I'm like, of course. Of course. And I love the shots of Xanadu moments before Wells' death there and how... The one light inside of the castle is on and stays pretty much at one o'clock in that direction, despite as we like dissolve closer and closer to it. And Bernard Hermit's Bernard Hermit's music here just kind of underscoring and just then it punctuates when the light goes off and then comes back on. It it is. I I feel enraptured every time I watch it and just like, oh, like, all right, I guess, uh. Yeah, and then I, I'm just like, alright, I'm just gonna put this on, I'll, it'll maybe some passion time. Nope, I'm completely sucked in until I'm smashed in the face with news on the march, and we get the seven minute uh, newsreel, we get a pretty much a recap of what Wells' life is like, and we see all these events just from a different point of view, rather from a objective point of view of the news uh, reel, we have it from a subjective point of view from all the memories we kind of deep dive into via flashback. Yeah, and an interesting thing about that newsreel is that Orson Welles worked on newsreels like that, I think, for radio. And so um, back in the day, when you went to go see the movies, it's also how you saw the news because not everybody had TV. Um, or maybe nobody had TV in the 40s. I don't know. I'm not sure, but <laughs> someone I, I, will have to fact check me on that. I'm um, pretty sure. But, I think it was the early 50s when we got the television. Yeah, part. I think so, too, because I remember even like, you know, my dad was born in the 50s and he told me about how like people had TVs, but not really until he was a little older did they get one. Anyway, side note. But yeah, <laughs> so when people didn't have TVs, they had to get their news someplace else. So that was the radio. And when they used to see a movie, there would be a newsreel at the beginning of the movie. So that's an even cooler part about this movie is it opens like that almost. It's like they're getting like that newsreel that they probably just saw, but now they're getting sort of a, a fictionalized version about uh, about um, Charles Kane Foster's death. And so that's kind of cool. And then it felt, felt very authentic because Orson Welles had a lot of, you know, experience making things like this. He did it for the radio. So I don't know. I think that's just a cool layer because it's parody on a certain level, but it's it's realistic and natural enough to where it's also, it, it blends into the film. It doesn't feel like silly or funny. No, I, I think it's like another thing you have to kind of recontextualize when you watch it. That like this this was a normal thing. The only time you see these kind of things now is the source of parody. 
Right. Same thing with industrials. Like, you never see industrials anymore, but you see parodies of it, even though the people who are making them now, like, obviously did not grow up with them. They're just doing parodies of parodies. And so it might be a little jarring the first time you see it, but it's another thing with the recontextualize, like, oh, that's how it was. And I love how it really sums up the entire the entire story right here, and we're just going to see it play out, and we, we're going to sit through it and eat it up, wondering what is the answer to Rosebud. Right. And so I'll ask you, like, all right, so I chose the very beginning is one of my favorite scenes. What's one of your favorite scenes? Ooh, um, let's see. Well, I really like, gosh, I guess I hate to revisit it again, but I really like the childhood scene a lot. Um, that's one of my favorite scenes because I feel like there's so much meaning packed into that. Um, and it's also interesting that Orson Welles, I think his mother passed away when he was like nine, right? Yeah, I think it was like eight or yeah. nine and then like his father at like age 15. Mm-hmm. So in, in this, you know, movie, uh, his his mother has come into some money. They, they have like a gold, they've hit a gold mine or something. Um, and so she suddenly has a is suddenly wealthy um and she decides to send uh charles off to with with like a rich i guess caretaker and it just seems so crazy under a modern lens right like we can't imagine anyone doing this but uh she she sends her son off to basically to have a better life than the life that they have there and i think there's also an implication that his father is possibly abusive or just not a great dad and that's another aspect of why she wants to send him away and she's just it it strikes you how like cold she is in this scene because it's very it happens very fast she obviously doesn't discuss this with Charles and he's just sort of whisked away and it's very painful and like you said earlier the way it's framed where they're talking about his future but he's not even in the room he's outside playing and then uh he's taken away to to the city and it's just i don't know it's just a very dramatic scene and i think you get a little bit of of emotion out of her uh when she calls his name i think for the last time for him to come over and they they pull in a shot on her and i think that's the only time you get like maybe a hint of you don't know what remorse or or just pain but i don't know the whole thing is really interesting to me and the fact that orson wells you know lost his mother at a young age and this character never really gets over the loss of the love of his mother in a way. Um, I feel like there's a connection there. There's something to that. Oh, for sure. I mean, the fact, I know people that kind of criticize it. Like she's like her, the actress playing the mother seems kind of like cold or like kind of detached, but you kind of put in the context of the scene, like, Oh, this is probably possibly the last time she's ever going to see her son again. And she's doing voluntarily. It obviously puts a strain on her and the fact that like the scene is pretty much three setups. So we have we don't we have the we have the outside of it, um, the of Charles playing in the snow. We have the close up of him throwing the snowball to the sign. We pull back into the cabin where everybody's having the conversation. We have the cut when she's at the window. And we pull out to have that conversation outside, and then the close up when. The, the really big close-up of the, of the scene is like going back to what you're saying that he's going way where you'll never be able to do that to him referring to the fact that like his the only reason Charlie's 
acting up because he needs a good thrashing as her father says everything and mother retorts saying he's going to a place you'll never be able to do that to him and then we have that big close-up as that tilt downs from her to uh charles who's glaring at thatcher at that point and then we see rosebud um accumulate snow and yeah so six setups for that pivotal scene there it's something to it's something i just wow at yeah it's complex and I think, you know, the thing that struggle that uh, Charles struggles with the rest of his life is just abandonment, um, both physically, but I think mainly emotionally. And I think, you know, in real life, Orson Welles losing his mother at that age, I mean, in a way can feel like abandonment. It's not like his mother chose to leave him, but that's a huge loss. And I think it leaves, you know, it's hard to lose someone. So I, I think that he injected a lot of his own feeling into the movie into his performance as the character and and into the care that he took in some of these scenes so i just feel like you can once you get that backstory you can see it in this film and i think it adds a lot of emotional depth to the characters Uh, definitely as somebody who's lost their mom a few years ago i can totally see that in this movie and it definitely seems that's part of the dna of of Kane's story here that it's it's he's kind of like using this movie as almost like a therapy session to try Mm -hmm. and exercise those kind of feelings that he has there and that he just everything that he does from this point on is just trying to get back to the feeling of affection that he had prior to being signed over to a bank right yeah you put it that way it sounds so awful (laughs) signed over to a bank yeah, but that's what and happened. It is what happens, but it but it it sounds like it sounds abhorrent when you put it into terms like that. But I understand it was for the best of what Charles can become. At that point there, right? It's like the price of greatness in a way. Yeah. And even like uh, Charles points out, saying like, "If I didn't have everything I had, I could have been a great man." Like he he, he even ponders the idea of like maybe i shouldn't have had this wealth right and then they kind of reassure him and he's like oh i did all right he kind of brushes it off but that emotion that moment is still there because you feel like that's the truth is what he's saying right there and not taking it back in the next sentence no and it's the but like the biggest thing that he wanted to to be is as a man is to be everything that thatcher hated right yeah so What's another great scene that you want to talk about? Um, when he meets uh, his second wife. Ah, yes. Uh, his second wife was Dorothy Comingor. Uh, she plays Suzanne Alexander Kane. At this point, she's not Suzanne Alexander Kane yet, but she's just a girl that he, he meets. She's uh, leaving a dental appointment, and she's giggling because she's... I guess on medication on medicine. <laughs> yeah, and then the fact that some uh, horse and buggy uh, carriage went by and and shot mud all over Kane, and he looks oh, ridiculous. Right. And he looks ridiculous at this point. And she's chuckling at how obscene he seems, like just covered in muck right there. Mm-hmm. And he's he's like, "What are you laughing at?" Like, "Oh, I'm laughing at you because of how ridiculous looking and how ow, my jaw hurts." And she explains that she just got a dental appointment and she doesn't feel pain when he's when she's laughing. And so he goes back to her apartment in the boarding house that she stays in and 
spends the whole night making her feel better and making her laugh by doing shadow puppets and trying to like say like oh I, I can wiggle my ears uh took me two long years and the per- the boy who taught me is the current president of venezuela right now <laughs> and it's just yeah. so oh sorry oh no go ahead it's so charming and the fact that like she sings for him and he sees the value and the talent there even though a lot of people don't a lot of people put it down she's she's not that great of a singer but in his eyes she is a great singer i don't know if it's because he's just blinded by the affection he feels or does he honestly think like oh i can make you a great singer right here and now i don't know i think he's really won over by the fact that she didn't know who he was because i think that's a big fear for rich people powerful people is you know ever finding someone who truly enjoys their presence i think in his marriage with his wife uh they've become almost like strangers or just occupying the same space and then he meets this young woman who is full of life and happiness and she's at the beginning of her career and i think he's just really won over by that and then when she doesn't even know who he is but enjoys his company i think he's really intoxicated with that um so much so he ends up telling her you know that about his mother and all this other stuff like he just gets really personal with her i feel like he just really lets his guard down once he realizes she sees him as just another regular person and if it wasn't for uh susan he may have found rosebud yeah yeah that's another little easter egg kind of thing that doesn't seem like a big deal till the end i didn't realize that until the most recent viewing and i'm like oh wow he was looking for it and he was about to go do it, but until he ran to Susan. Not saying it's Susan's fault or anything. It's not like it no. was any malicious intent. It was just the coincidence of the cosmos right there. And I want to say that uh, Dorothy Comingor, I think she was also part of the Mercury Theater Company because she wasn't like a big actress or anything. She hadn't done film before and she is incredible in this movie. Just amazing. Uh, so funny. But then later her her performance is so dramatic and so compelling. I mean, I really feel for her character throughout the film. Um, and, you know, she turned down a lot of parts after that because she just felt like nothing was ever this deep and this you know multifaceted she there wasn't parts like that for her and she kept turning them down until eventually you know nobody came knocking anymore and she didn't really end up having a career so just interesting side note but such a such a great performance and definitely a standout in this movie so even from the very first scene when the reporter goes to see her in Atlantic City and she's kind of just drinking herself to oblivion doesn't want to speak to anybody yeah and I love that that scene where we're introduced because we see the sign of like the club that she has, and it's a miniature. And we, the camera goes through the miniature, and like the sign pulls apart in order for that that camera move to happen. Just so ingenious for that like that kind of creativity on this scale. It's like it's inspiring to see. It really is. Um, oh, I, you know, one thing I forgot to mention about Greg Tolan too is that uh, Orson asked him how to use a camera. And Tolan said, you know what, I can teach you everything you need to know in a weekend. And he did it. And that's a really huge thing for somebody, for that to be their entire job, like to be a cinematographer. And that's like your craft. And yet he was humble enough to say like, actually you can learn what I do in a weekend. And like literally showed him how to do it. I think that that is just so cool. Well, I mean, that's the kind of thing that it's, 
it's gone on to people saying like you can learn everything to how to make a movie in two weeks or and then like later on like Robert Rodriguez would say like oh you can learn everything you need to know how to make a movie in 10 minutes and just trying to demystify the crap because especially at this time where it was such a guarded I guess profession that like oh you needed to work your way up into these kind of ranks you had to break in and then work your way up or anything you couldn't just go out and make it on your own and so i think that's why wells is like all right so how do you do it but like the nuts and bolts thing is like all right here's the mag here's the film magazine it's threaded this way through the camera comes out this way this is the exposure this is your lens this is the battery that goes for it and so on and so forth right and and it's also very humble of him because he was a great cinematographer, right? And he, he was a master at his craft. He'd done 17 movies. And for him to whittle it down to, oh, you can do this in a weekend. It's like, he's also being a little bit humble, too. And that's a key thing, because there's so many, like, uh, there's so many people in certain departments that can be very high in themselves. And it's like, oh, yeah. like, I, like I, I mean... Like, there's a great book on cinematography that I love, but, like, the title is, like, Painting with Light. And, like, that is a very, you could argue that's a very pretentious way of just <laughs> to describe me a craft like that. But I know some people believe that. Some people say that's just a catchy title. But there are genuine people that think, like, oh, that's how I see things. I mean, there was somebody I was trying to work with once, and he's like, oh, I need this I need a minimum of this and then I like a five hundred dollars for this and then I need another two fifty to hire a crew and everything and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like that's like the entire budget of the thing. That's not counting everybody else here. So I think we're just gonna have to agree to disagree and just part ways there. And because like I can't work unless I have this. I'm like, Well, I'm sorry, I guess we're not working together because you feel like you're entitled to something like that. It's just you just gotta right. it, it is a not, and I know it sounds like I'm just like taking jabs at somebody. Like, no, it's just, it really, I, I'm just very adverse to pretension in, in any shape or form. So seeing what Tolan did for Wells here, that, it, like you said, it's very humbling and it's very encouraging. Like, yeah, there, there are people who's like, no, no, this is what you have to do. And there's no big mystery behind it. Let's just, let's try and do something cool with this. Yeah, it's like you can either be guarded and protective of your craft and your name and, you know, your profession and not want to share any of your secrets, or you can invest in other people and grow them. And I think that's what he he saw a lot of potential in Orson Welles, and he wanted to grow that part of him, and he did that. And I think in the end, it's like you end up with a better reputation. Uh, you know, you don't lose anything. You, you have all, all this to gain. They made one, you know, arguably the best movie ever made because he chose to do that. So I think it, it speaks volumes. And Tolan's recognized as probably the greatest cinematographer ever made. Like every cinematographer majors, like everybody says, they pay tribute to him. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I have one more scene I want to talk about. Of course, well, let's fire away. Uh, so the other scene that I really, I don't know, it's like it really grabbed me the first time I saw it was his, like the party scene where they're celebrating and they, with the dancers. You could probably set this up better than I can. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I was gonna, that was going to be my next scene as well. So funny enough where they realize the New York uh, Chronicle is the competitor with the biggest circulation um, compared to their newspaper, The Inquirer. And they realize, oh, the, the big staff editors there, and it's like, well, that's why like they're so good. They have nearly a five hundred thousand 
uh, circulation daily. Look at those editors. That's they took them twenty years to acquire that, and we push in on this photo of these editors here, and we dissolve into those exact fo- that exact photo, but. Re- they're real. It's a real person sitting in real people sitting in the Inquirer offices saying six years later, I got my candy and I got my editors. Welcome to the Inquirer and the celebration of and the first like kind of it's a breaking of the kind of scene we saw previously where they're going to tell the stories honestly. And well, and Kane's like, we're going to declare war on Spain and very much like. William Randolph Hearst's you know, involvement with the Spanish-American War, with his with his line, "You provide the pictures, and I'll provide the war." With the invention of yellow journalism, it's funny because the person receiving all of it, Orson Welles's character, uh, it's like just a big fun party to him, but to everyone else, it's like this embarrassing grin and bear it, gaudy display. And I just think that's really cool for a movie of this era. I, I just don't feel like I see that. I don't think I've seen that a lot in anything else. Where you have a character is like, no, no, we're having a good time. We're, we're like, we're celebrating. Come on, dance. Let's do this. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, let's celebrate. Uh, yeah. And I just think that's really the, the way that they shot the scene. It's very, it's very clever. Like it's even the girls, the dancers like reactions when he's like dancing with them and, kisses that one and just all of it you're just like ugh, it's just terrible you know what I mean like you get that instantly and I don't feel like I don't know I just don't feel like I've seen that in a lot of movies from around that time and the reason why it's so exemplary is because you have the conversation between uh, Mr. Leland and Mr. Bernstein and Bernstein kind of being a very sycophant to Kane leaning in like yeah this is a big time celebration and Leland's like no like all these people worked at the the uh, Chronicle. Uh, do you think we can bend them to our our kind of way of thinking, our principles here at the Inquirer? And Bernstein's like, yeah, sure, why not? He'll pay him enough to do that. Yeah, but then Leland retorts saying, yeah, what if they change Kane? Right, right, yeah. And it's something I... Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's something I never noticed until this viewing here is when they're having that conversation, we cut away to like their two shot. I never realized the window in the background has a reflection of the party going on in there. And so, like, we, like we, we are not facing, we're facing like towards the other wall where there's like a window that leads out into the city. And it's just the two of them in on either side of the frame, but in the center of it is a window reflecting of him dancing with the dancers in the background. I'm like, even though he's not in the shot, they're keeping that story there. They're, they're still keeping him omnipresent, even in this, he's not li- traditionally on screen. Never noticed that until his viewing. And I was like, why have I never seen that before? And it's just like, and it's just like, just summon up more praise for this movie. Yeah. No, but yeah, I, uh, I, I totally agree. I think it's, um, it's ingenious to show that conversation, but to still have the party essentially in the same shot, but they're not in the same space. And I don't know, it, it, it does seem like, man, that, that must've been really hard to, to get everything to line up so that they could, get it all in that shot like that and uh, another thing that we look as we we pointed out we listened to the peter bogdanovich commentary like there's two glass um k's on the other side of it for the celebration like like kind of like you see like an ice loose these days 
uh, for the Kane's uh, celebration here, those had to be keep getting replaced because underneath, the reason you can get the defocus like that is that you need a lot of light in order to do that. And so you mm-hmm. close down the lens. And so you think of it as a very bright day. You can see from a quarter of an inch to your eye, like in focus all the way out into like two miles in the distance. And that's your eye stopping down in order to close so it can only allow so much light into your eye for, and to be able to keep everything at focus same thing with a camera lens in order for those deep focuses to be uh maintained you need a lot of light in order to do that and so actors are sweating through makeup because you require more makeup to be under those lights and those um giant k's for Kane were melting because there's so much light and there's so much heat coming off the sets there which <laughs> i find very funny yeah and i think like the whole scene is it feels almost like sped up. It's really fast and crazy when he's dancing around. I think that's another thing I like about it is, I don't know, it's almost like he's drunk and excited and I don't know, just the whole thing feels very uh, frenetic and yeah, I don't know. There's just, a, there's a vibe to that whole scene that I just really, really like. I just feel like it's very modern for when it was filmed. Right, and then we you have everybody in the staff hooping and hollering and cheering him on there and he seems so ready to take the Inquirer to new heights. But the next time we see him in the offices, he couldn't care less to be in there. He's there just because he's about to marry the president's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that is uh, Agnes Moorhead, who plays Mary Kane. And I, it was the first time I ever noticed the, the tail gag where, like, we start at a table that's very small, and that's how their close and intimate relationship is. And as, they, as their relationship kind of deteriorates, the table gets, gets longer and longer to further illustrate their separation from each other. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, and then they have all those different costume changes and, like, their makeup changes and stuff, too, to make them look older. It's, it's a pretty cool scene. And it culminates with she's reading the Chronicle, his main competitor, and not even speaking to each other at breakfast anymore. And it's like, oh, geez, like seeing how terrible things have become for them. Yeah, and then the nail in the coffin really is his uh, affair. And it, was it, like, a actual affair? Do you think, like, they consummated that relationship, or do you think it was just that he went to go there to ha- he listen to her sing? I think that it was an affair. And I okay. think that... Th- that's just the vibe that I get. And I think that... um. I don't know. I think the 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 relationship with his ex-wife and this new one in the future, I guess, becoming his new wife. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's so much there. Like when he starts running for office and she's in the audience and she's all upset because I think she just found out about the affair. Um, and everyone's cheering him on in her face. I just love all that because I feel like what ends up happening with Kane is that he's really fun in the beginning. He's super charming. And then slowly you get to know him. And he's awful. And everything's about him. And, you know, even like the campaign and his his son is so enamored with him and everything. And then he ends up being, you know, she puts him in a car and sends him home. And then she gets in the car and um, he goes with her to get everything all out in the open but and that's the last time he sees his son ever again by the way um but anyway uh 
I feel like that's what happens is every time someone really truly gets to know him is when they really become disenchanted with him. And it happens a few times in the movie with her, with close friends that he has that he pushes away. Um, And eventually it's going to happen to this new wife too. And I just really like her performance throughout all that. And I think it's just very, very interesting. I just really like the way that that all plays out with, with her. But yeah, I do think that she knew... Um, because she was told, and I, I do think that they were already in a relationship. Because, you know, she she saw him, she sees him, and she knows him, and it's it's not exciting anymore. You know, he's got to find someone new that doesn't know him. He, re- he literally says that to this new person, and someone that hasn't gotten to know him yet. That makes sense. And his reason how he's found out is because his opponent, uh, Jim Giddies, uh, they're both running for governor of New York right there, discovers the love nest and puts that in the open there. With the last name Giddies, he's very happy. He's very lucky he didn't get a knife in the nose. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, also, too, like, you know, this is kind of a problem that Kane created, right? Because this is the kind of storytelling he was pushing with his newspaper. And eventually, um, he's got all the people from the Chronicle. That's, that's the kind of news he's selling now. Um, and then so somebody takes that and uses that against him. Um, and I, and then his wife's caught in the middle of that. And I think that's another layer of why she's so upset is like everything ends up being around him. Even her humiliation is really going to end up being about him. Oh, right. Because he's, he built his paper on sensationalist news stories and hop-eds. And so Giddy's is going to just use that exact same kind of thing against him. And the, the, those are the kind of taxes were brought into his political campaign of him running for governor. And so, like, all right, you, it, it goes back to the saying, you play with matches, you're going to get burned. Right. Um, and the collateral is his family. Yeah. And, and, but yeah. I think it's kind of, I, I, I guess the, maybe one nitpick here is that, like, we know that his first wife and son are die in a car crash. And was it just his son or both of them passed away? I think I, I think both of them die oh. in the car crash. Okay. I think, yeah. We only hear that in the newsreel and it's never brought up again. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've, I've wondered about that. Um, I think in the commentary or in something that I might have read, they said that part of that is just to show you how selfish Kane is. Um, that they're such an afterthought to him. That even though they died, it's like, yeah, it's just faded into the background of the movie and not something that he really struggles through or deals with. Maybe because he didn't really love them. I mean, like, even Yikes. when... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you kind of, like, see the evidence that when his son tries to get him his attention during his speech and, like, Charles gives him that kind of, like, half-hearted wave to him in the middle of it and then he goes back to his very verbose and powerful speech... And isn't that ironic when, as a little boy, when his mother turned him away, like, how much pain that put him through? But then his own son, he literally does the exact same thing, too? Yeah, that he doesn't recognize his own... Like, the whole problem, I guess, is his downfall was his hubris. And that's what it boils down to. Yeah, and his his lack of self-awareness and inability to examine how his own behavior is you know, affecting him and affecting his life and affecting the people around him. But yeah, I think it was, you know, seeing that little son be so excited to see him and then the mother's face next to it, just kind of rolling her eyes. It's kind of, 
I don't know. It just shows a lot in that one scene. And I really like that because it, it shows you, you know, people that see what he's projecting and people who see who he really actually is. I mean, most kids think their parents are superheroes when they're that True. age. And then you see your father on a stage like that, commanding, working a room like that. I mean, like, right. he must be look like a titan to that child. Mm-hmm. And Orson Welles loved giving speeches. That was what he was good at. He even expressed later he wished he had gone into office. <laughs> I mean, with a voice like that, it makes sense. I, I could totally see mm-hmm. that. And it is kind of funny. That there were parts of watching it for this review. Like, I couldn't help but just think of Maurice LaMarche. And all the impressions he's done throughout the years, especially Brain on Pinky and the Brain. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like what he's known for, right? Is for his Orson Welles impression. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like he did, he did his own parody of the the P commercial that got out of hand. That, that was a tape around Hollywood that, that made its way around. And that's how Pinky and the Brain came about. And that's why on a previous episode of this show... When they did Ed Wood, that's why he... That's right. <laughs> he does he does the voice for Vincent D'Onofrio's Orson Welles. Uh-huh. And I love Pinky in the Brain so much. <laughs> Actually, somebody just shared a video of it recently of, like, it's Pinky writing um, a letter to Santa Claus. And it's, like, the reason, like, he... The one thing he wants for Christmas is for Brain to be happy. And I was like, oh, geez, I didn't, I didn't want this to get too real in this 30 second clip here I'm like alright <laughs> I was just scrolling through Facebook now I'm in tears I'm like uh, from Pinky in the Brain I'm like well there I'm just going to go about my day and nobody's going to know about this I'm going to keep it to myself until I say it on a podcast for listeners around the world I feel like there was a Pinky in the Brain movie don't quote me on that and I feel like I had it on VHS was it like a collection of episodes or? Yeah, it might have been. I think it was a collection of episodes, but I had a VHS. It was exclusively just them. And there was the Pinky and the Brain show later on. But yeah. I mean, that's. Man, that... memory lane. <laughs> like that's another rabbit hole that we can run, fall down to. Like just resurgence of Warner Brothers animation um, of like in the early 1990s where it'd be Pinky and the Brain, Animaniacs, Tiny Tunes. Uh, yes sidebar like um i was talking to my sister recently and she's like oh of what like would you have to move to uh california to work here and i'm like probably and like and she's like oh you live like on the warner brothers lot like yeah do you know what i'll live in the water tower it might be a little tight to squeeze with wacko yakko and dot in there but i think i'll make it work there that's for sure and she was like i'm like she she laughs so hard for that i'm like you're probably one of the three people I probably know who I got to say that to that would get that joke. So I'm glad you were right there on the page with me. <laughs> anyway, uh, Citizen Kane. Um, Back to Citizen Kane. Exactly. Uh, another scene that I really love is the um, when Susan is trying uh, the first time that she's opening up the Chicago art, uh, the Chicago Opera House, and we see like all the pressure and all the chaos of getting this production in order right before curtains go up and the camera just cranes up and we had the kind of transitions to the rafters where few of the workers there and just like the one of them just holds his finger up to his nose and just shakes his head no like oh my god that stinks and like i laugh every time because it's so subtle but i'm just like oh my mm-hmm. it's so mean I know, and it's kind of, um, they mentioned in the commentary, it's kind of, you know, the scene before this where Orson Welles kind of gives it to the 
singing teacher, you're seeing that sort of from his perspective. And you, you slowly learn that her career becomes more about him. I mean, he says, we're going to be a great opera singer. Um, and, you know, the teacher has already expressed she can't really sing very well. Um, but he kind of shuts that down. And then during this performance, it's sort of almost from her perspective. You see her so frazzled and at first the camera is behind her. And but then slowly it shifts perspective, like you said, and we see the guys in the rafters. But um, I think this is where I start to really feel a lot of sympathy for her because I think, you know, she realizes that people don't like her singing um, and he doesn't care because it's not about her singing. It's about his reputation and he will not cave no matter how obvious it is. You know, he buys her this opera house, even though he said he wouldn't do that um, and it doesn't go well. And he's still clinging to this idea that he basically can never be wrong. He'll will it into existence, even if mm-hmm. he has to like fight tooth and nail to do that. I mean, even to the point where <laughs> we see several times throughout the performance that Bernstein nearly falls asleep during the mm-hmm. performance. Not a good sign. And how uh, Joseph Kahn's uh, Leland is just like just turning. He turns his playbill into like a, a, a finger cuts and everything, and it turns into just like. An art project while the the show is going on, which I I know that's mean to the, do that to a performer, but I I laugh at that because he's like that's how mm-hmm. much he thinks of this performance right here. Right, right. <laughs> it's terrible. And then it follows up with the I think another fantastic scene is when Leland's gotten drunk and he's passed out. In the middle of his uh, dramatic review, Kane comes back and finds it, and he decides to finish it for him. And I hope, uh, I wish I could meet somebody named Jenadiah so it could say, "Evening, Jenadiah." Click, 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 click on a typewriter, and it's like you're fired. No idea why. <laughs> I just love that delivery of that line there. For real, and isn't it kind of ironic too, though, that Herman J. Mankiewicz wasn't he an alcoholic didn't orson wells have to like put him in a desert somewhere or finish a script or something i think that was that he was known to take a drink i think it's the most polite way i could probably say that but yeah he did have a drinking (laughs) problem yeah and so he kind of worked that into the story i think but i think orson wells did too so i'm not yeah i mean they both did um but yeah it's interesting he put that into the story i don't know a little bit of self-commentary there i guess Right, I mean, like, there's so many... Uh, it's a running joke amongst writers that a lot of them have substance abuse problems. I mean, you can right. run down a list here. Like, the, sure. first, the first name that comes to mind is Ernest Hemingway, and so right. we I all know how that happens. I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I even love the fact that when Susan is freaking out, reading all the reactions the following day, mm-hmm. and she's like, she won't, she won't do it. She refused to do it. He's like, no, you'll do it, because... It's not a. He pretty much says it's not about you. It's about me. And then she like I haven't realized it though that she tries to kill herself to get her out yeah. to get out of this. I'm like I don't know why. I'm just like, wow. It, it is that much. It is that painful her that she well, r- rather die than do this. And she says something really poignant too when she kind of comes to. She says you don't know what it's like to be up there and for the audience to not want you. And I feel like that was such a clear opportunity for him to 
have a turning point, right? Because isn't that how he feels? I mean, isn't that what everything he does, that's what it's about, right? Like the newspaper, the running for office, and now this, it's like, because he wants to be loved and adored and accepted, he knows what that would feel like to be, you know, not wanted. And so she says that to him, and that should, I mean, I think for the audience, I think it's very moving. But for him... He, it just goes over his head. He basically, like, right away is lying to the doctor, like, oh, I should, this was an accident. And he doesn't care that it almost killed her. Because that would be admitting fault or defeat, and he will never yeah. do that. Right. It's just, I just think that scene is very powerful. I mean, that really was his last final moment. He's looking at her, she's sweating, she's vulnerable, and she just says that. And he could have been like, oh, my God, that's how I feel. <laughs> like, But you're right. He has no time for self-reflection and he can't be wrong. So, no, it, it goes unnoticed. Right. I mean, I think the only good thing that comes out of that scene is the fact that he like he goes in with the intention of convincing her that, no, you'll continue to do this. But no, in that scene, she wins it and he he's like, all right, you'll never have to sing again. I think that's the one victory you can take out of that scene there. Yeah. That's the nicest he'll ever be. Right, but so what does he do? He banishes them to Florida and builds a, a mausoleum for them to live in. Yeah, super depressing. It's really cool, though, how they make that place look so giant. Um, in the commentary, they were talking about how they just basically built a giant fireplace and the way that they had the camera positioned, it made it look like there was like more going on, but really it's just like a tiny space. I never noticed that until they pointed that out. Yeah, it's a lot of forced perspective and it's a lot of like matte paintings and set extensions that way. And it's very, it's very, it's pushing the art form there. And I remember somebody made a video like of like comparing the Citizen Kane to The Godfather, like which was the, which was the more important film, which was the greatest film, American film of all time. And the, the YouTube uh, video creator said Citizen Kane because Citizen Kane pushed the art form and pushed techniques, while The Godfather, as good as it is, it is just a throwback to older gangster movies just told with more modern actors. It was meant I agree. To, it's yeah. a love it, the- letter to it where Citizen Kane is like, no, we're pushing the medium forward. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, you didn't. Um, no, I completely agree. And I think that... This whole scene feels weird and dreamlike. Um, You know, even the name of their house, Xanadu. Um, It feels very strange and kind of trippy. And it it feels like because they're there for so long and it's just the two of them, even though they talk about parties, we don't see them, but they talk about them. So I know there's other people there. But because of that feeling of like isolation and a long time, it feels like they're both like losing their sense of reality and you are too watching it. And I think a lot of that is because they just couldn't build a giant mansion. <laughs> but it plays really well into the into the scene and into the movie itself. So another area where I feel like they had to get creative due to budget cuts, but it really works in the benefit of the movie. Right. It's another of those things you just want to like pause the, the movie and just like take in the surroundings and try and figure out like how do they do this? How are they able to pull this off? Because... For the longest time, I thought this was a huge budgeted movie, and yes, it was still it still had a really nice budget. But compared to some other movies that were made at the time, it was smaller because RKO, as big as the company was, it was not 
an MGM. It was not a Warner Brothers. It was not a Universal. It was a smaller company. But, and so they had to be a little more creative when it comes to being able to stretch the budget in, in those kind of regards. Right, yeah, and you can really see that. Once you know it's there, you can see it, but it's just crazy what they were able to do with that budget. Definitely, and I even love it where their relationship is going so much further where we see Susan um, finish so many jigsaw puzzles and they go on this picnic in the middle of like, it looks like the Florida Keys, and I love how she says, you never got me anything I wanted, and just like, they are so miserable together. I know. And isn't this another area that upset uh, Hearst because Marion Davies also loved puzzles or something? Yes, that was yeah. something that she was big into. And she had a, I guess, a, she enjoyed to drink as well. And mm. so I guess like another thing, it was it was too close to home in Hearst's eyes there. Yeah. But it also just fits really well with the scene. I think all the puzzles are a really good way to show like a passage of time without having to show like a clock ticking or something. Definitely. And like I mentioned before in that HBO movie RKO 281, there's a scene where Hearst meets with all the heads of the major movie studios in Hollywood. And there's something like, so you had, you have the Warner Brothers, you have MGM, you have uh, the Lemleys from Universal and you have Walt Disney there as well. And there's something, I remember this moment here, it's been a while since I've watched this, so I may be really off base with this. Like, a lot of the heads make a joke, everybody laughs, but Walt, Walt seems like the odd man out. And I bet you at the time he was, and then you cut to today, and how much media is controlled and created by Disney it is, seeing Mm -hmm. seeing how the tables have turned there. Yeah. Yeah, although arguably he was kind of always snatching everything up. (laughs) If you read like a biography on him or something, but it's true. I think it started out being really creative and has become, yeah. I mean, I love Disney and I like a lot of the movies that they put out, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, Um, Yeah. I think the the listeners can read between the lines what I'm saying there. (laughs) It's a secret message, guys, for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm being subtle. real subtle about it. I hope you <laughs> wink, get it. Wink. I hope you got your uh uh your uh oh, I'm trying to think of what the hell the Dakota, the Dakota ring. Dakota ring. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I just I knew what you meant. I knew what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> uh crummy commercial. What a cracker shit. Um anyway. Uh, Man, just think about the fact that people a little bit younger have never seen a Dakota ring before. No idea what that is. I think I just felt another gray hair pop out of my head after you just said that. I, I, <laughs> and it's so true. Um, and, like, the whole relationship kind of, like, really comes to a head where Charles strikes Susan at one point when they're out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, my, that is really <laughs> oh far. <my. laughs> and then it ends up with her leaving him and him... Tear, uh, tearing his, her room apart and it is kind of it's a little awkward be- with uh, with Orson in that little bit of a fat suit and it seems like he's yeah. a little constrained trying to chuck trunks across the room and everything right well and also like right before she leaves she says to him like 
uh, I can't remember the exact line, but she's basically like, tell me, if you can tell me you love me, but you don't love me. Um, and I don't know. It's like, it's, he's just so gone by that point, you know, like he's not there. He's not emotionally available and she's confronting him with that. And then she leaves and then he just flies into rage and breaks everything. Um, like you said, just sort of proving her point really. Um, it's just, it's just sad. I don't know. So it's a really good scene, but I agree. He does look kind of awkward in the fat suit. Yeah, and, and like it's really punctuated when he leaves the room, and it's the entire staff her, who have just heard the commotion staring at him at this point as he saunters off into the catacombs of his mansion. Yeah, so surrounded by people, but alone. Yeah, and that's why I love that shot with him in front of like the infinity mirror, where it's yeah, and it's just like the and it just keeps going further and further into distance, and the only solace he has is that the snow globe that reminds him of Rosebud. Mm-hmm. That's when it comes full circle. And I love that, and I love the at the end here, and so I love the crane shots when it's just the reporters in the house, just going through all the cataloging everything that's there all the the jigsaw puzzles the statues and so on the pieces of art and it shows the how expansive the collection has become here and another thing i really enjoy is that the fact that we don't see the reporter's face he is as anonymous as everybody else in the audience watching this on the big screen right he's you he's intruding into his life and so are you yeah and i like that scene with all the junk because i feel like Again, it's a really cool use of that the deep focus lens where you 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 can see everything on the screen at once, and uh, your eye is just jumping all over the place trying to figure out what Rosebud is at that point. Definitely, and then we just kind of slowly push in on something, and we see it. And what is Rosebud? It is, it is, it is a sled, and it ends up in the fire because they think it's junk. And I just love that line from The Simpsons. Wait, don't you want this? It's a symbol of your lost youth. Oh well. Uh, oh well. I guess we'll have to deal with his. Uh, his. Uh, I guess we'll have to deal with uh, his brother George Burns, and it cuts to a young George Burns doing his shtick there, and I'm like, I can't help but like chuckle every time I see Rosebud uh, burn because I think of the Simpsons episode. I'm like, dang it, it's supposed to be a serious <laughs> moment here. It's kind of ruined for me right now. It's ruined for you. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I like the idea that. It is Rosebud and it isn't in the sense that, like, it represents his childhood and how he felt, but it's it's like that one object isn't everything. It's just, it's a part of a more complex answer to a question. And the fact that despite all the information that all these, uh, you know, journalists had about him, they didn't really know him. That's not something that would have been written anywhere, you know, just how he felt about his mother and you know, how his happiest moment was actually as a child. Like, that's not something that anybody knew. And it kind of leaves you with this idea that, you know, when somebody dies, it's like you feel like, did do you ever really know them? And how can you ever really know somebody completely? I don't know. Just all that is really cool to me. I think that's the point of the news on the march there is this show, like, how he was known worldwide, but nobody knew him. Right, because he never let anyone in. He didn't... He didn't let anyone love him. He just demanded love of others, and he didn't show love for other people. So they end up not getting to know him. Exactly. And I and I know it seems like we could keep talking about this for hours, but I guess another question is here. 
do you think it's worthy of the praise it's gotten? Do you think it's it should be considered the greatest mo- Hollywood movie made of all time? You know, I think that answer is, oh my gosh, <laughs> to quote Ray, subjective. Um, I think it's hard to answer. That that answer is going to be different for everyone, the greatest movie ever made. Because I think that there is a lot of context you need for that. And, and everyone's biased on some level. Um, but I think that you have to look at the impact the movie had on cinema and the way it changed cinema going forward. And I think in that way, yes, it, it is one of the greatest movies ever made be, just because of what it impacted going forward. And I have to agree. I mean, like taking theater actors like that and photographing it in such a way that make it so interesting and kind of breaking the rules here. And as great as all the Wells movies that came afterwards, I don't think they were as bold as they were this one. Touch of Evil comes close to me for in my eyes. I agree. I love Touch of Evil. And I know everybody praises the great three-minute opening shot there and how bold it is, but I think the shot in the apartment where it's like a ten-minute scene almost uncut mm-hmm. is remarkable and... His performance in that is just as good as is what he has here. I agree, yeah. And so it is, I think it's, if we want to retire it as like, like, oh, that is kind of unspoken as the greatest movie ever made, I could see that. If somebody wants to say like, oh no, Vertigo is like, I'll have problems with that because I don't think as great, as huge of a Hitchcock fan is, I don't think Vertigo is his best movie and that's something I'm going to, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. I mean, and I know I've gone to many arguments about that, and I'm just like, nope, rear window, and that's that's the BL and end all when it comes to Hitchcock. Anyway, um, it is tough because it is so subjective, like so many things in the arts. It's and I don't think I think music is the most subjective art form out there. Movies being a, a close second. I if somebody said like, oh no, like if a computer came to me that we've We've run the crunch the data, and Sister Kane is the greatest movie of all time, according to all this data we've we've gone through. I'm like, yeah, I I wouldn't question him. Like, I could see that. I wouldn't I wouldn't argue that, because of all the techniques that's done of using miniatures and using of uh, special effects in there, and it's all done seamlessly. And the long takes and the the elaborate staging of scenes there that has influenced so many people going forward. It's incredible. I mean. People like William Freakin, like the first time he saw it, he saw it like eight times in the first on the first time he saw it because he just sat in the theater and just kept watching it over and over and over again. And it is just really remarkable just to it's one of those movies that's continue to be analyzed for years to come, and I think it deserves that. And as any filmmaker or a film fan out there, I think you owe it to yourself to give yourself a shot to like, okay, let's see what this is all about and see about why this changed movies. Right. I I completely agree. I think it's a solid story. It's one that is relatable. Um, It's one that is kind of timeless in a way. I mean, I think, you know, even now, if you watch this in 2019 with, you know, not knowing a whole lot about how wonderful it is, I still think that it's a very compelling story. It's very well written. Um, Orson Welles is a great actor and he's a great filmmaker. And I think you're right. I think all the shots in the film, the way it's filmed, the techniques he used, that's what really sets this apart from 
like you said, his other work and also just from, you know, that that's what influenced so much film going forward. You, you have to give him that, you know, it's like you it may not be your favorite film ever. Fine. But you have to acknowledge the impact it has. You know, it's like the Beatles. OK, they changed rock. OK, like if you don't love the Beatles, that's fine. But you can't deny they had a big impact on music. You can't deny that Orson Welles had a big impact on film. Definitely. There's no argument coming from me, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, on that note, were there any other scenes you wanted to to throw in? Oh, geez. I mean, we could talk for another three hours about it. I mean, um, <laughs> let me try and think of anything that I really Yeah, enjoyed. I feel uh, like we hit the highlights, but if there's one or two extra you wanted to... Um, yeah, I think also like the... The reporters afterwards, after seeing the news on the march, which is them in the screening room, I really enjoy. I just love how that's photographed. Oh, yeah. And Where it because, looks like a church, that scene. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, and then, like, when they go to see Thatcher's um, ledger and, like, in, in the Thatcher archives, and that just looks like it's in a, a vault and everything, and, like, how stark everything is and how... It's all to him. It's so mm-hmm. it is so um, anachronistic compared to Wells's uh, to Kane's kind of lasting legacy, so on and so forth. Where Thatcher's an open book, where Kane's is so secretive, so on and so forth. Um, and then like the the montage of like his story of like all the editing techniques, like he'd start a sentence in one scene and end in another. And then seeing all the newspapers and like all the kind of ridiculous headlines. And then we meet young Orson Welles when he's 25 years old. And now that scene is about Thatcher talking about like, you're going to lose money. You lost a million dollars last year. Like, yes. And I lost, I'll probably lose a million dollars this year. Most likely a million dollars next year. At this rate, I'll lose, uh, I will run out of money in 60 years. And like, just like, he doesn't care if he's going to lose money, but he's doing what he wants with it. He doesn't care if he's not being financially responsible there. Yeah, and then isn't that what happens? Like, he loses it. Yeah, I don't know. So like he lo- money. Because I, I don't know if he lost it, and like that's the reason why Xanadu was never completed, or he just didn't care that Xanadu was not completed. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's, the, it's a very curious thing here. I mean... Hell, during that, like, the news on the march scene, like, we see handheld camera work was something that was not a common thing in Hollywood movies, like, and one video is just like, like, uh, Citizen Kane, it changed everything. It, it, pre- it predicted the law, the found footage summer. Bam, there you go. Hot take on <laughs> oh, that. Oh, yeah, because like, they filmed it to make it kind of look like you weren't supposed to see it. It was private, like, secretly filmed somehow. Exactly. And I'm like, yo, what? There we go. I, I, you could write an article about that for sure. And I know. So, it's like, aren't we doing that now? Like looking in people's houses and taking pictures and then, yeah, it's, uh, it's terrible. Paparazzis, I mean, not everybody. I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to judge whatever you do with your free time, whatever. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to care about that. But yes, paparazzi's doing that for sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, I mean... We could go scene by scene, but I think that'd be kind of boring here. But no, I, I am I am satisfied with the conversation we've had. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so much to unpack. And I really think it's a movie that you need to see for yourself. So you guys should go do that. And to kind of wrap this up here, I'm going to ask you my last two questions. So uh, summarize, why do you think you've seen this so many times? As filmmakers that I, I admire and study, I try and find out who influenced them 
and why those movies impacted them. And so like, and then I see those movies and see what impacted them and just kind of see what the lineage is of, of how cinema is. Like you look at Martin Scorsese movies, a lot of that came from Francois Truffaut and so on and so forth. And that influenced Paul Thomas Anderson and Steven Spielberg said like, Oh, a lot of this stuff comes from Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles and Michael Curtiz. And so I'm like, all right, I'll go study their movies and fall in love with those filmmakers. So on and so forth. And seeing the kind of just the classical Hollywood filmmaker being redefined right here. And it's something that the use of crane shots, the use of long takes and the moving the camera like that. I know it's a very technical way of looking at it, but the editing techniques that they use to keep everything so snappy, the overlapping dialogue, which is, I know it's such a pain in the butt for sound uh, recorders and editors, but it gives so much energy to the movie that it's like, you don't, you didn't see that back then. You you wouldn't see like a thing like that come to prominence until like nineteen seventies. A lot of Ro- Robert Altman. I was movies. gonna say seventies, yeah, like Mash. The movie Mash is what I think of when I think of everyone just, talking at once. Yeah, and, 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 and like some people think it, it it causes anxiety. Like, well, that's the point to see something like that. And like I just saw Jaws on the big screen last night, and like so many people talk over each other because that's how we talk in real life. I mean, we've stumbled over mm-hmm. each other so many times during the recording of this because that's how people talk. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, I completely agree. It's very natural. There's a lot of scenes in this movie that feel, you know, very natural, even though there's a lot of surreal and really cool special effects, too. It's like all a balance and it's seamless. It's just done very well. Yeah, I I think, you know, I think you and I had a conversation a few months ago. You were almost nervous to pick this movie. Do you remember that? We were talking about it, I think, on Twitter. Yes. You're like, is this pretentious to pick this movie? (laughs) <laughs> oh because we're just like oh is this too much or is it just like uh, is it like outside like the realm of, like of the the program or is it just like oh we're just gonna be sitting here with our turtlenecks and berets and our pinky yeah. out and just like talk about cinema as like oh yes this is how we're gonna talk about it like that and and i'm just like or is it too monumental movie to be able to try and cover in one episode so on and so forth yeah no and and i i I totally get where you're coming from with that because I do feel like this is one of those movies that people that aren't super into film, it's like if you bring it up, they're like, ugh. They're like, it's in black and white. It's about a journalist. Yikes. Or not a journalist, but a news media tycoon. Um, But it's like that doesn't scream exciting, fun movie making or movies for – it's not a popcorn movie, you know? And – um. I can understand why some people might feel like, I don't know, I, I think there's a, a thought when you don't study film or aren't super interested that it, that everyone's sort of pretending or something. Like, they're all like, yes, this is so good. You just don't get it. <laughs> but I think that there is something to the fact that once you have a, a, an appreciation for the art of filmmaking, that you do see things that you might not have seen before you knew about that. So it's not that you're saying, oh my gosh, there's no way your mind can comprehend the genius that is Orson Welles. But it's that it's easier to appreciate it once you know more about it. And so this movie rewards that. If you really love filmmaking, then you'll love this movie because it's got everything you want in it. And so, you know, take that level of fear of like, you know, I feel the weight of having to get this movie, quote unquote. You're going to enjoy it because it's good. And I think the more that you look into how it's made and learn about it, it's just going to enhance that for you. Definitely. I mean, 
going back to what you were saying a moment ago, like, oh, just because you're not into it, you, you won't get it. I was recently listening to a podcast with two filmmakers I really enjoy, but they were just so waxing on poetically about Igmar Bergman movies, and I have not seen that many Bergman movies and how they strive to make the movies like that, and I got very self-conscious about that. I'm like, oh, is it because they're very successful because they're reaching to try and do something very specific with their uh, movies, and I just want to entertain people, and like in my somehow lesser than and it's got into a weird funk about it and then people say like no just because your tastes are different and your your purpose is different doesn't make you any more or less uh, of a filmmaker than those people or anything it's the same thing as a moviegoer like just because you don't have a certain mindset about movies doesn't mean like you won't understand or get or or do, you shouldn't be allowed to appreciate a movie like that I just say if you want to learn more about movies, I think you'll have a greater appreciation of this movie if you are willing to uh, take the time to figure out how this movie was made. Right. I think entertaining people in and of itself has value. And, you know, um, that's that's a noble cause as any, I think, to make movies. And uh, I think Orson Welles wanted to entertain people too, you know? So I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that at all. And yeah, I just don't want people to feel intimidated by it. I, I think I felt a little intimidated, you know, researching this movie and like, should I spend three extra days researching? Should I do more? Should I watch it eight times? And then I was just kind of like, I think I'd rather just be my authentic self of, I really enjoyed this movie. I like a lot about it. I'm of course going to spend time reading about it, but we're mainly talking about the fact that we like it and that we think other people should see it. And I kind of hope that people walk away from this conversation. We have you who has studied film and, you know, you're making films and you've got me. I'm just sort of appreciating them. Um, Between the two of us, I I hope that you walk away with a reason to go revisit this or a reason to give it a chance because I think everyone can enjoy this movie. And it's definitely that your podcast has definitely helped at least me to want to check out movies I've never seen before. Like, I still want to see Perfect Blue, even though yes. I've already listened to the episode. And I'm just like, <laughs> there's a day I'm like, I need to watch Perfect Blue. I need to watch Akira for the first time. Yes, I've not seen Akira. Yes. I know it's I know it's a, I, I say that too loud at a certain convention. I will be shamed for that. I realize I that. I know, you, and I, I hate that anime fans are so crazy, but <laughs> myself included. But you should. You should check them out because they're entertaining, not because I've forced you to. But I appreciate that. Um, I kind of got all my 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 pitch out of the way already. So why don't we? My pitch was that you should see this movie and everyone can enjoy it. What what what's your pitch for this movie? Your elevator pitch. Um, want to see the movie that most of Hollywood try to ban, but end up changing the industry years later? Watch this. Yeah. We didn't really touch a whole lot on that, but basically, William Randolph Hearst tried to end this movie. I mean, he did not want it to be made. He didn't want anyone to see it. They couldn't show it in most theaters. They had to show it in, you know, a couple small theaters. Uh, I think Orson Welles wanted to show it in tents, and they were like, that's crazy, which I feel like now would be an amazing marketing ploy, and people would definitely do that. Uh, But back then, they were like, that's nuts, no. Um, So this didn't really... get off the ground it also hampered his career for a while um you mentioned you know being like blacklisted um and so yeah there's just a lot working against this film and yet it had such a huge impact on movies like forever so yet another reason to go see this 
Right, because this is at the time before, because studios used to own movie theaters, and so they were pretty much controlling the entire product of, like, from concept to uh, exhibition, which is kind of going the same way these days anyway, but... um, (laughs) True. And so, like, Warner Brothers wouldn't show it, like, NGM wouldn't show it, but RKO still owned theaters, and even though George Safer, the head of RKO Pictures, was offered $800,000, the budget of this movie... To pretty much destroy the negative, Schaefer was like, no, we're still going to put this out. And it's that kind of resilience right there. Like, even the in the face of adversity, they still put it out. They still put that out there. That's something that's very commendable that I think everybody could take a take take away with that as a good lesson in your, in your own kind of endeavors. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, and just so many people behind the scenes, as we mentioned earlier, wanting this to be a success. Like the, we didn't talk about that much, but the makeup in this film, I think, still looks pretty good. I mean, it's incredible, and the makeup artist didn't even like win anything because uh, he was not. I, th- I don't think he was in part of the union, and so he didn't qualify to get an award. And just so many people pouring their talent into this film and, and getting it to where it was. And yeah, it was indie before that was a big thing, right? It was artsy even back then <laughs> because it was not mainstream. And so, yeah, it's just got such an incredible story. The story about this movie is almost as interesting as the movie itself. Exactly. I mean, it is, it, it's the movie that keeps on giving where the story, mm-hmm. the, watching the movie itself or how it got made. And that's why this movie is so rewarding. I think that's why, yourself and I will probably continue to come to revisit this. And I hope people who haven't watched it in a while will go back and and watch it or people haven't seen it before. will give it a chance. I hope we convince a few people like that. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, uh, thank you so much, Tim, for coming on this episode. Uh, thank you for carving out the time and for, for coming back. Always appreciate having you on the show. Oh, I really appreciate it. It's 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 nice to be like uh, liked and like hey, come back on the show and everything. It makes me see like okay, I'm not just a person who talks on his own shows. That like people are like oh no, we like to hear your opinions and things. Like okay, that's it's kind of validating that way. I know it's not, it seemed like oh, of course, <laughs> of course you would want me on your show or anything like that. No, I, I'm very um, eternally grateful that you want me to be continue to be a guest on your show. Yeah, we'll have to. You'll have to be, start thinking about what you want to do for the next episode. Oh boy! Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another six months of me trying to figure out what next movie to do. <clears throat> <laughs> well, we tackled the best one ever made, so you've got that out of the way. So everything else is just kind of, you know, whatever you want to do next. We should do something really schlocky, like real, like C grade movie, just to do total opposite. I think that's what we should do. Yes. We, should do like, we should do like a trauma sure. movie. I don't know, Toxic Avenger. Yes, Who knows? I would love to do a trauma movie. Yes, I had the Tox box back in the day, so we should. Oh God, that that uh, we may have to do that. Anyway, we're gonna put a pin in that to okay. for a future okay. conversation. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tim, uh, do you want to shout out any handles, any Twitters, anything, anything like that? Yes, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, and my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where my short film Jack is up, and so you can go Jack, hashtag my Annabelle creation, it should pop up, and you can, if you like the movie, subscribe to the channel and put on the notifications, so 
You always know when I, I, I have uploaded something new. And stay tuned because they, I am working on a uh, Gotham Central fan film. That's the next big project yes, I'm doing. Yes, that's so cool. I, love, I can't wait to see that. Yes, and I think there's a certain cape and cowl day coming up in the next few months that might be coming out. So you have to stay tuned for that. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tim. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. 